invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Our life-changing look at Jesus is currently on hold until January. Christmas and New Year will drive our sermons to close out the year. And so our text for this morning is Matthew chapter 1, particularly verses 18 to 23. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Now this is the word of God, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Have you ever thought about how absurd Christianity is? The Christian faith is absurd. Maybe you don't think so, but I, I think you're wrong. Let's start from the beginning. You know, according to the Bible, God created everything out of nothing. That's absurd. If I were to collect the world's greatest minds, greatest scientists, greatest thinkers, innovators, and task them with creating a single piece of dirt out of nothing, they could not do it. I'm not talking about creating a human or a life-sustaining planet or an entire universe, but to create something simple, lifeless, small, like a fleck of dirt out of nothing. The greatest minds that earth has to offer could not do it. You have to have something not nothing. You have to have something to create something else. No one can create something out of nothing. That's absurd. But that's what the Bible said God did. And great and mighty humans, well, we know that that is impossible. Well, let's fast forward the tape just a little bit there in the Old Testament and what the Bible says. Let's, let's think about the pinnacle of God's creation, mankind. 
Mankind is said to be created in the image of God. They are image bearers of God himself. They're blessed by God there in the beginning. And they're tasked with ruling and filling the world. Kings of the earth, so to speak. The Bible says that God gave them dominion over every other living creature that he created. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the world. Fill the earth and subdue the earth. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the skies. And over every other living creature that lives and moves on the earth. In other words, he takes the man and the woman who he's created in his image. And he says, you're kings. Rule the seas. Rule the skies. Rule the world. But these uh, image-bearing kings called on God to dominate creation and rule the earth. They're so pathetic, weak, that all it takes is one lousy snake to come along and they fail. King Adam and his wife, they fall. Their kingdom falls. All of mankind falls. All of God's good creation, and remember, God declared everything he did after creation as being very good. All of God's good creation is conquered by one little snake. And all hell breaks loose. That sounds kind of absurd, doesn't it? Things got so bad as we just fast forward the tape a little bit farther that by the time Genesis 6 rolls around, Genesis 6, 5, and 8 tells us that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah, the next verse says, but Noah, perhaps a second Adam, perhaps a second king, but Noah, like Adam, walked with God. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, you know what happens next. Noah builds an ark and he throws a bunch of animals on it and they're saved from a worldwide flood. Absurd, many would say. 
but maybe not. Especially if you take what Peter says later to be true, that, that the ark is actually a living parable. Remember the living parable that Jesus gave us with the fig tree? That the ark is actually a living, real-life, word-picture parable to teach us that all those who do trust in God, that all those who do walk with God, will enter into the ark of Jesus Christ. And as the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth, they will be saved. As the story of Noah goes, the flood, it subsides and God makes a covenant with Noah and promises to never again destroy the whole world with a literal flood. Then God commissions Noah just like he did Adam. Be fruitful, multiply over all the world. And the fear and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and all flesh of the sea into your hand they will be delivered. King Noah, ruler of the world. That is how Genesis chapter 9 begins. By the end of Genesis chapter 9, King Noah is passed out drunk and naked in his tent. His son takes advantage of him. We're not told what his son does. But we are left to assume that it is something extremely shameful. The heartbreak that happened with Adam after original creation repeats itself with Noah following the flood and recreation. Now, if all that actually happened, well, that would be absurd. But according to Christianity, this kind of behavior, it's normal. This is what marks human beings. It's, it's what we do. We shake our fist at God, and we live, and we think, and we act as if he does not exist. That's what happens time and time again in the Bible. We see these people encountering God. His handiwork, creation, all of it declares his glory. And yet we shake our fists at him and pretend as if he does not exist. Fast forward the tape a little bit farther, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. God covenants with a man named Abraham. And he promises Abraham to make him a great nation. The nation that would eventually become Israel. And then to bless the whole world, all the nations through his offspring. Abraham would become the father of kings who would rule. So what does Abraham do? After God makes these incredible promises to him, out of fear, he lends his wife out to live with and be with another man. And then he does it again. 
And then he sleeps with his wife's maidservant and gets her pregnant. The story repeats itself with Abraham's son Isaac. God promises to bless Isaac and to be with him wherever he goes and his offspring and to multiply them like the stars of heaven and to bless all the nations of the earth through them. So what does Isaac do in the very next set of verses there in verse in Genesis 26? Out of fear, he offers his wife to another man. King Abimelech, king of the Philistines. I'm not sure what's more absurd in these accounts. The rebellion, the foolishness, the wickedness of these unfaithful men are the fact that God continues to choose them. To love them. To pour out his unwarranted blessing upon them. Now if we just flip the page to Isaac's sons, they're no better. Especially Jacob. Jacob, who God later renamed Israel. So that's an important fact. Israel, Jacob. He's a lying, <laughs> stealing, cheating manipulator who backstabs and betrays his own brother. But what has God promised to Israel? That his offspring will be like the dust of the earth and that all the families of the earth would be blessed through them. Oh, and God promises to always be with him and never leave him. Mind-boggling. Now Israel's sons are just as corrupt. They, of course, become the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 heads of Israel that later make up the nation of Israel. You know how the story goes? Those brothers, they sell the one brother, Joseph, into slavery, and they tell their dad he's dead. But he's not dead. He gets shipped over to Egypt where God elevates him to vice president of the country. In effect, he becomes a powerful king, ruling the most powerful country in the world at that time. And like Noah, Joseph saves his family when the wrath of God is poured out upon the world via a global famine. That's when Jacob, Israel, his dad, finds out that his beloved son is not dead. He's alive. For all intents and purposes, Israel's beloved son is resurrected. Back into his father's life. And God uses this resurrected son to save the world from famine. From his wrath. You know, it's crazy when you think about it. The sons of Israel murderously betraying their brother, their brother who their father dearly loved. They told their dad he was dead, but then he's resurrected and he saves them. 
and he gives them what he's earned. That sounds absurd. As we turn the page from Genesis to Exodus, this pattern of God being with and covenanting with sinful, doubting, corrupt human beings continues. He continues to promise to bless them and to keep them and to love them. And it plays out time and time again in Scripture. The first thing we see grown-up Moses doing as we turn from Genesis to Exodus is murdering an Egyptian and then burying the body. How does God respond in the very next chapter? God appears to Moses in a burning bush and tells Moses that he is going to use him mightily to save his people. God shows him powerful, miraculous signs to prove that he has the power to do it. And what's Moses do? He questions and doubts God. God chooses to use Moses anyway. God also chooses to use Moses' right-hand man, a man named Aaron, to perform crazy miracles to convince Pharaoh to free God's people. And you, of course, know that God's people, the sons of Israel, are now enslaved in Egypt. And finally, after suffering divine plagues brought through the hands of Aaron and Moses, Pharaoh is convinced to let the Israelites go. But then Pharaoh decides to change his mind. And he starts chasing after the Israelites. And that's when God miraculously parts the Dead Sea. And Moses and Aaron, they lead the people of Israel through the Dead Sea on, on dry ground. But when Pharaoh and his troops chase after the Israelites, the waters, they come crashing down on top of the Egyptian army and the Israelites are saved. Sounds absurd. Doesn't it? A sea parting and a nation walking across it on dry ground? Do you know what else is absurd? The fact that archaeologists have found ancient Egyptian military artifacts on the floor of the Red Sea. But nobody knows how they got there. After all that, after all the miracles that Aaron saw in Egypt, the ten plagues, he was the instrument that God used. After crossing the Red Sea, after seeing the Egyptian army destroyed, after seeing the glory of God in a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, how does Aaron respond? He builds a golden calf. And he leads the people of Israel to worship it, saying, this is what brought you out of Israel or out of Egypt. And then he lies to cover it up. So what does God do with Aaron? He makes him the head worship leader. And all of his sons, all the way up to the time of Jesus. That is absurd. Time doesn't allow me to go through all the examples of Israel's sins after they entered into the promised land. 
But Judges chapter 21, verse 25 summarizes it rather succinctly. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Evil. Genesis 6 all over again. King Saul, if we fast forward the tape then, 1 Samuel, he uses a crystal ball as his guide rather than the word of God. King David was uh, complex, to say the least, to put it nicely. On the one hand, he wrote beautiful psalms, was a man after God's own heart, a man of great faith, and was Israel's greatest king. But on the other hand, he was a warmonger, a murderer, an adulterer, a polygamist, a plotter of evil, and died somewhat paranoid. You remember how his life ends, right? Him calling his sons and plotting out a list of all his enemies so that that way they would kill and get David's revenge? That's paranoia. All while he lay in a bed with a teenage virgin to keep him warm. And yet God loved him and promised to be with him wherever he went. God blessed him and his offspring. He promised David that one of his descendants would one day sit on his throne and rule the world forever. King Solomon, David's son, that guy was blessed beyond measure. He, he was the richest man on planet Earth, and he was the wisest man. You do know that he had the blessing of building the house of God, the temple. We call it Solomon's temple. But did you know Solomon built himself a house around the same time that he built the house of God? Who do you think got the bigger house? Solomon or God? Solomon. Was Solomon's, was his, was his house twice the size of God's? Three times the size of God's? Four times the size of God? His house was more than four times the size of the house that he built for God. What was he thinking? But I suppose Solomon needed a house that big for his 700 wives and his 300 concubines. You do know what a concubine is, right? It is a female slave used by a man to bear his children to ensure that his name would be Continued. Today's vernacular, we call that a sex slave. Solomon is one of the greatest kings of your faith. An author of scripture, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And yet he turned from the Lord. 1 Kings 11.4, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. 
A few verses later we read, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place, a temple, for Chemosh, the abomination, the false god, of Moab. And for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. Where'd he do it? On the mountain east of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives. Looking down on the temple of Yahweh. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. Church, the story of the Old Testament has two main characters. God and man. And though the Old Testament is filled with story after story after story, they are all basically the same. It's the story of Adam and Eve and God. God creating us, giving us life, blessing us, showering us, with incredible gifts, God desiring to be with us, to walk in the garden with us, to be in relationship with us. And one way or another, we find somehow to turn our back on him. And we leave the one true God for a snake. And yet he remains steadfast. His love enduring through it all. Still promising to never leave us or forsake us. It sounds absurd. The book of Hosea summarizes this plot line for us really well, but I'm going to warn you, it's ugly. God commands Hosea the prophet to go and marry a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom as an illustration of God's people committing even greater acts of whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Isaiah, Hosea 1 and chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 outlines that for us. In Hosea chapter 3 verse 1, the Lord tells the prophet Hosea to go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Hosea 4.12, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. But despite our whoring, Despite our sin, 
despite our unfaithfulness and idolatry and adultery, God says in Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils within me. My compassion, it grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy you. For I am God, not a man. I am the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And that kind of love is absurd. It defies all logic. It's a love that makes the cursor in the human mind just spin and spin and spin because we cannot comprehend the depths, the height, the width, the breadth of that kind of love. The steadfast love of the Lord endures. It endures from the time of the snake into eternity it endures forever do you want to know why god created the universe a universe so vast that no matter how smart we get as humans we can never see the end of it it's so that you could have an illustration of the vastness of his love it is unending it is inescapable. Romans 8:39. Nothing, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Not even a snake. Not even a snake. That's why when we turn the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament on the very first page we read that Mary will have a son and his name will be called Jesus for he will save his people from the crafty snake and the intentions of our hearts that are only evil continuously and being passed out drunk naked in our tent and sharing our wives with other men and adultery and raping slaves and worshiping idols and looking into crystal balls and being a polygamist and a murderer and a plotter of evil and playing the role of a whoring wife who was married to a faithful God. His name shall be called Jesus, for he will save us. He will save us from our sins. 
He will win. He will be king. And he will rule. And he will subdue. And he will have dominion over all the earth and the skies and the seas. And his offspring that he causes to be born again will fill the earth. And he will teach people from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue to obey everything he has commanded. And like the people of old, he will be with us. And he will not leave us. And he will never forsake us, even to the end of the age. Let me tell you something. There's one thing more absurd than the love of God. And it's the people who reject it. I was wrong. Christianity is not absurd. It is the most beautiful thing there is. God is real. The Bible is true. And his love is amazing. Let's pray. Thank you, O oh God, for the message of Christmas. Thank you that you sent your only begotten son because you loved us. And he has saved us from our sins. Amen.